almost everything we think we know about addiction is wrong. What if addiction isn't about your chemical hooks? What if addiction is about your cage? What if addiction is an adaptation to your environment? This has really significant implications. The most obvious implications are for the war on drugs, right? We punish addicts, we shame them, we give them criminal records, we put barriers between them reconnecting. The opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. What's up, you guys? Uh, it is I, you know, your your cute and cuddly co-host, um, Bow Ball Baggins. One ball to rule them all. Um, oh, that sounded <laughs> so lame. Uh, I don't know. What's up, you guys? Um, I have... A pretty good episode for you. It's with um, someone named John Gillen. He uh, runs a bunch of inpatient facilities in the UK, uh, and he has a lot of really interesting topics to talk about. Um, you know, I got a f like a handful of emails from people hitting me up, being like, "Hey, I want to come on your podcast," and I was like, "Fuck yeah!" So I was scrambling to get them all scheduled and recorded and and it's just like been kind of hectic but i have a few announcements i want to get done uh just to update you guys on what's going on with um nod squad so um basically i you know as many of you know i'm in rehab um i've been there since april and um i've probably said this a million times but there are uh, four phases. First two phases are like 90 days each. Third phase is like 75 days. And I'm, you know, a few weeks away or a couple weeks away from tra transitioning from phase three to phase four. Now, um, phase four of this program is like kind of like a sober living. Basically, I don't really do program elements. Um, and it's, I'm like, going to be working, going to school, uh, and, you know, I'm allowed to have my phone and my car again, and I'm kind of just going to have, like, a new sense of freedom, so I've been super fucking busy getting set up for all of that, you know, getting my license all in order, getting my car smogged, pay for registration, insurance, um, you know, um, setting up a bank account, oh my god, I've been... I've owed like three banks, like $300 each for like God knows how long. And then trying to get, you know, credit and get situated with school for financial aid and, um, you know, my resume all updated and dusted off and working on, uh, working with a public defender who has like an expungement clinic to get my old convictions cleaned up. So I've been super fucking busy. Um, 
So with that being said, I may um, take a week or two week break from um, releasing episodes. I don't know when that will be because um, I just don't know. But um, I have a lot on my plate and I, I, you know, I'm... I just need to get that shit done. I have a bunch of old recordings that I'm trying to get mixed and fi- you know, finished and released um, so that you guys will have as much content as possible. But basically, um, there may be a week or two week gap when there won't be any episodes. And like I said before, I don't know when that may be. Um, I'll just have to figure that out. Uh, but I will do my best to keep episodes, you know, coming. Um, you know, I have, like I said, I, I, I've been going through this computer. I have so many old recordings I need to, to dust off and get out there. Um, and, and, you know, another thing is like, I've been just kind of, uh, down and kind of gloomy and in like kind of a little bit depressed, um, because so much crazy shit has been going on that I kind of just need to take some self-care time to focus on myself and, um, you know, and, and do more work on myself. Um, you know, uh, someone I knew that was a graduate on the female side of the rehab had passed away recently and, um, they found her, her body in the bathtub of the sober living she was at, she had died from an overdose and that was kind of heavy and hit me pretty hard. And so I've been processing that. Um, another friend of mine, um, I was watching the news one morning and his face popped up on the news and apparently he's been missing for over a month now. You know, um, no one knows where he's been or, and, him, his car and and himself have been missing for well over four weeks. And that kind of just blows my mind. Um, because it's like, you know, he has kids and I'm sure his kids are, you know, I, I've just, this whole Christmas I've been thinking about his family and, and how, how difficult Christmas must've been for them wondering where he's at, you know? And I've been, I, I try not to think about it, but I, I need to just process it because it's like the way I see it is like best case scenario, he's out on a sick run getting loaded this whole time, you know, um, worst case scenario, he, I don't even want to say what worst case scenario is because I know the town he was living in and the, the, the you know, the, I don't know, the fucking gangs that roll through there. And what they're capable of. So I don't even want to get into worst case scenario. Because I mean I really don't have any information. But when you, you're you know in the unknown. Or at least when I am. I try to process like possibilities. Or, or you know like. And, and I'll, I, I tend to jump to worst case scenario a lot. With everything in my life. And any situation. So, um, so basically because of. All these different things going on in my life, I may take a little break. I'm not going to take a, a permanent break, but there's just so much going on in my head. Like, it's just in a weird transitional stage in my life where, 
you know, I'll still be getting drug tested and held accountable and I'll still be in like somewhat of a safety bubble that is um, inpatient, but I'm going to be having more responsibilities and more things on my plate and, you know, on top of working and going to school and, and trying to maintain this project, I'm going to have to like keep my, you know, recovery strong. I have to still go to meetings and, and network with the fellowship where I'm at and talk to my sponsor and, and you know, I'm constantly reminded like, yeah, this, there's these things called steps that will save my life. And then on top of that, like, you know, like this last weekend I, I went, it's it just been kind of a surreal experience where I'm like looking through old photos on my computer and seeing how fucking horrible I looked and I may not have been, you know, really aware of, of how I affected other people. And then dealing with, um, you know, accepting the fact that I've ruined some relationships that I'll never get back with certain people or friends or family members or loved ones that are just like, just like, just um, don't want anything to do with me. That's kind of like just something I have to process and accept because it's like, I, I tend to, I don't know, just fixate on all these things and people that I lost because of all the dumb shit I was doing before I, I went and got help with, with my life. Um, so that just, it's just been like, I just am constantly recapping this, these past eight, nine months. And then even the months before where it's like all the shit that uh, crazy, horrible shit that was going on in my life. And, you know, there was things that had happened in my life that I not even, not yet comfortable even opening up about on these airwaves, like just fucked up traumatizing shit that, um, you know, I had to go through and, uh, I'm still processing that, you know? And, um, the, the, I, yeah, I won't even get into that, but maybe one day, you know, after I feel, you know, more up for it, I can reveal some of the things that I was exposed to or that had happened to me that, um, just fucked me up. Um, and you know, I kind of, I want to, you know, part of me wants to, or part of me is like, it's just too much to even, to even talk about right now. So... You know, um, that's basically what I wanted to get out there. Uh, so I, you know, um, if I do forget, or not forget, but if I am unable to release an episode for a week or two, um, that is why, and I apologize for that, it's just, um, I really need to focus on learning how to balance all these different things and be... A productive member of society so um that's where my head's at um and yeah it's just it's kind of crazy thinking about but um I do want to get into this episode um and I do I, I also I just want to say like yes thank you everyone who's emailed us and left an iTunes review, I definitely need to finish, like, 
reading those because fuck I've been lax on that um and I will I promise um but hey you know since this is a more recovery based episode with John Gillen let's um get into a war story just a quick one uh you know for the fuck of it um and the one that's popping in my head at the moment is kind of dark and a little crazy. Uh, so, um, yeah, this is, yeah, this is a fucked up story. Um, so <laughs> let's just get into it. Um, basically, okay. I was living in San Luis Obispo and I was DJing a bunch of, you know, parties going to, I was kind of in and out of college, kind of like taking classes, not taking classes. Um, and by this time in this story, I was really only just popping Oxycontins, going to parties, drinking heavily, you know, occasional lines of Coke, mushrooms, you know, sometimes psychedelics. Uh, I, I hadn't really gone to the dark side of the needle yet, but I was, I was partying way too hard, um, you know, and getting into some crazy shit. So on this particular day, I decided to go on a hike with my friend Chris to the top of a mountain known as Bishop's Peak. And for anyone who's um, a slow native, uh, we have these rows of mountains in San Luis Obispo, they're called the Seven Sisters, and the two most popular ones are Madonna Mountain and Bishop's Peak, which are like side by side, and they have these crazy hiking trails, and they're kind of a pain in the ass to get to the top of, but once you get up there, you have this crazy view of the whole city. It's, it's amazing. So I'm hiking up there with my friend Chris, um, and we get to the top of Bishop's Peak, kicked our ass, and we're like exploring up there, taking pictures. And um, I get, somehow I have cell phone reception at the top of this mountain. And my other friend, uh, Josh, calls me and he's like, what are you doing tonight? And I was like, well, he's like, what are you up to, basically? And I'm like, I'm at the top of Bishop's Peak. And he's like, oh, fucking crazy. And so, um, he's like, hey, I'm having a fucking house party, um, and I want you to DJ it. And I was like, oh, cool, fuck yeah. And now Josh, I've, I've known Josh for a while because he had two brothers, two younger brothers. He was the oldest. Um, his middle-aged brother, uh, I went, Mike, I went to grade school with, and then his youngest brother, Brian, and his, and Josh himself, I we worked in the detail department at this BMW dealership in San Luis off of like Los Osos Valley Road. And uh, so we, you know, I worked with him and, you know, we all knew each other and we all partied and they all knew I DJed. And so he called me up and invited me over. So I was like, all right, well, when I get down off this giant fucking mountain, we'll go, I'll come over. And now Josh 
and I would go on these crazy road trips to get pain pills. We loved pain pills. Now, this dealership was like that we worked at was crazy because all the BMW car salesmen, they would all they were all high on pain pills. They would pop oxys, perks, methadone pills, anything and they they would be on their A game just like slanging crazy ass expensive Porsches and BMWs and you know if they if we, they needed a fast detail like they would hook us up with pain pills and then me and Josh would go on these crazy road trips and buy literally hundreds of Vicodins or hundreds of you know any kind of pain pill and slang them and so you know we we liked our opiates so I was I was like okay well can I buy some Roxy's off of you um and you know when I get there and then I'll, you know, I'll bring my equipment, we'll DJ the show. It'll be a good time. And he's like, yeah, cool. Come by. So, um, we go, me and my, other, my friend Chris, who I'm with on the top of this giant mountain, we're hiking down this giant mountain down this hiking trail. Now towards the peak of Bishop's peak, the, the trail is like, does these little S turns cause it, it's too steep to go straight down. So you got to go like zigzag left and right. Um, for a while until the, the mountainside gets a little less, um, steep. And so while we are hiking down this mountain, we see this guy by himself and he's fucking out of his mind. He's basically, he, he's taking these giant boulders and just hucking them off the fucking cliff and it's rolling down the mountain, but it's going straight through these hike s these s curved zigzagged hiking trails you know without any regard for if there's people down there hiking you know he could have fucking killed someone and we we're like what we passed by him we're like what the fuck are you doing dude and he's like oh it's so cool we're i'm throwing this boulder off and seeing how far it goes now mind you we're at the top of a mountain there's really no way we can call for help if someone's hurt up there. You know, people have died up at the top of this mountain. I think someone jumped off the cliff, like, on mushrooms once, and they broke their back and died. Like, if you fuck get... You need a helicopter to get you to a hospital if you are if you get injured up here. So we're like, that's really not cool, man. Like, you shouldn't be doing that. And he's like, no, it's all good. This is cool, man. And he's fucking just tossing this boulder like multiple boulders off this fucking cliff and we're like oh okay well you know all right well so i just we're just like this guy's out of his mind so we'll we'll see you later so we start to walk down the trail looking and making sure he's not tossing a boulder that's going to hit us and so he's trailing behind us and following us down this mountain, and he won't shut up. He's like, so what are you guys doing tonight? You guys going to party? You want to hang out? And we're like, no, we're good, dude. We're all fucking good. And so we start to pick up our pace to try and, like, fucking shake this guy and get away from him. <laughs> and he starts walking faster, trying to catch up to us. And so now we're like, okay, this weirdo won't stop following us. And we're in the middle of nowhere on top of this mountain. Like, we need to shake this guy. He's fucking weird. And he's just weird. Like, he's just... You know when you meet someone and they have that weird, creepy vibe and you want to get away from them? That's basically what this was. So, we start to run down this steep hiking trail. Like, running away from him. 
and he starts to run after us and chase us. So now we're going through these zigzag hiking trails. And instead of going down the trail, he just goes straight down the mountain, cutting through the trail. He almost fucking clotheslines me. And he's ch- he's basically chasing us, like following after us. Now we don't know what, what this dude, what's wrong with this dude. So we basically, this is like a two, three hour hike. We run down this fucking mountain and down the hiking trail as fast as we can. And I'm just cramping up. I'm fucking sore. I'm just like tired. I'm like, oh my God. And finally we run all the way to my car that I parked at the bottom of the mountain. And this guy's still fucking behind us. And we've, but he's like, at least where he's like a safe enough a distance away. So we get in our car and we drive away and he's like, Hey, come back. And we're like, fuck you. And we get away from this guy. And I was like, well, that was fucking weird. So now my body is just dead, fucking tired and sore my fucking legs are cramping up. And I'm like, God, that was awful. So then I end up um, taking a shower at my house and um, getting dressed for this party. Because it's like, dude, I want to get these oxys because my body is so sore. You know, I wasn't at the point where I was like popping oxys daily. But if they were around, I would go find them and do them. So I meet back up with Chris and his cousin, uh, Berto, or Roberto, Berto, we called him Burnt Toast. That was his nickname, I guess he liked to be called that. When he was high on speed, his nickname was Green Goblin because his face would turn green. But um, anyway, uh, we were not high on speed that night. But me, um, Chris, his cousin, Burnt Toast, and his Burnt Toast's girlfriend, we get in... Uh, 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 burnt toasts, uh, Nissan Xterra, and we head up uh, the grade, which is this like freeway, part of the 101 freeway northbound. And we go to Atascadero and we go to my buddy Josh's house party. I got all my, my mixer and stuff loaded in the back. Josh has a PA there, so I don't have to worry about that. And I get there, he hooks me up with some Roxy's, I snort some off the the fucking the top of a the toilet in his bathroom rack up some lines and now I'm feeling much better you know I hook up my equipment and I'm getting ready to DJ this show um you know there's a there's a full keg they have something that you may know of it's called jungle juice they they have this like little homemade bar like table and they're selling jungle juice to people and so, um, you know, people, if, if no one out there listening knows what jungle juice is, it's basically you get all the different types of alcohol that exist, mix them together, throw some tropical fruit juice in there. And that's jungle juice. It It's horribly, it's horrible. It gives you a horrible hangover and it fucks you up. But they had a little menu and it said, cause there was like, they, they were charging for, I think they were charging for people to get in uh, and then you got keg access and then if you wanted to buy a, a cup for jungle juice, you could pay for that. But then on their little uh, billboard menu, it said, ask about the secret menu or the special menu. And so I was like, well, what's up with that? What's on the, what's the uh, special menu? And he's like, oh, those are mushrooms. We're selling mushrooms behind the bar to people who want them. So I was like, oh, cool. 
hook me up with an eighth of mushrooms. So then I am super high on Roxy's and I'd eaten an eighth of mushrooms and I have my DJ gear set up and I do a little mix uh, for about an hour, hour and a half and then I take a break and you know they just play some iPhone playlist of whatever top hits were going on because I was like dude I can't DJ this long. I'm starting to trip balls and I want and you know I've been drinking too some jungle juice and now I'm like kind of faded and I'm like okay I need to just chill back by this keg and drink some beer and you know mellow out so I'm doing that and I'm out in the patio smoking a cigarette in a circle of friends and inside the house there's just this huge line to the bathroom right and um so one of my friends, um, I don't even remember his name. He was a mechanic at the BMW dealership we all worked at. Uh, fuck, I forget his name. I didn't know him that well, but he was—he always showed up to the parties with us. He basically was in... There's just this huge line in the bathroom for people to piss, and he was so drunk and so wasted, he cuts past like 20 people and goes to try and cut in front of everyone to get into the bathroom to piss. And this huge thuggish looking dude who was waiting in line was like, what are you doing? And he's like, I got to go take a piss. He's like, well, you got to wait in line like the rest of us. And my friend was like, no, nah, fuck that. I I'm going to go in and <laughs> fuck all of you. And this is unbeknownst to me. Basically, I'm outside not knowing this is going on. But uh, basically... Uh, they get in a confrontation and they get into a fight um, and they're fighting in the fucking you know living room uh, and this thuggish dude that was in line ends up smashing a, a bottle over this kid's head and he's clutching onto the neck of this bottle and he's got him in a headlock and he's kind of just uh he's jabbing the broken glass side of this bottle into the side of this dude's head, cutting him prof like profusely around the ear area. So like there's just, apparently there's blood everywhere. His ear is pretty much hanging off of his head at this point. And I, uh, I don't know any of this is going on. I'm tripping balls out in the, and smoking a cigarette kind of sipping on a beer but way too drunk to really be you know drinking anymore and I just see a sea of people pouring out of this fucking house and running and screaming and it's just chaos and you know when you're peeking off mushrooms it's like all your senses are are fucking totally heightened and I'm like okay what the fuck is going on and um they, uh, my, you know, Josh's youngest brother, Brian's like, we have to go. Homie got his ear basically cut off with a broken end of a bottle as a, in a fight. And the cops are going to come. We got to get the fuck out of here. So everyone's got to go. He's clearing people out. So I didn't even see the inside of the room or see, you know, the, the blood. Thank God I didn't see the blood everywhere or, or a severed ear. That would have not been cool. Um... So me, Chris, Burnt Toast, and Burnt Toast's girlfriend are like, let's get the fuck out of here. So we're all fucking wasted. I don't know what drugs or what alcohol anyone's on. I know that I'm fucked up and it's like, I'm not going to be able to drive. Um, 
and we get into this Nissan Xterra. I don't, I don't even go get my DJ equipment because I'm like, I no, fuck that, I'm gone. And we walk, and Burnt Toast is so paranoid, he takes this quarter ounce of weed and stuffs it in a bush. And uh, I didn't see him do this, but like I knew he had weed. We were smoking all day. I didn't see him stuff it in a bush, and so we drive off. And he's like, fuck, man, fuck. And I'm like, what? What is wrong? And he's like, I left that weed in the bush. I want to go back and get it. And I'm like, no, dude, there's going, we're, if you, their cops are probably there right now. There's no way we're going back under the state we are right now and having to deal with cops possibly questioning us, interrogating us. You could get a DUI, you know, fuck that. And he's like, no, man, I want that weed. Fuck that. So I'm like, all right, fine. Fuck this. Let's go. So we turn back around and this is a Tascadero kind of sketch area. Don't, you don't want to deal with cops there. And so I'm basically, we park. I'm just like, what the fuck? At this point, I'm like, fuck it. Let's just do this. Get this over with. So we park up the street and now we're walking sneakily, slow, slowly past a cop car. And Burnt Toast is looking through this bush like a fucking crackhead trying to find this bag of weed. And, uh... The cops, thank God, are inside. Their lights are still going, but they're in my friend Josh's house assessing the situation of of this dude's severed ear. And he's just digging through a bush. It's like very suspect looking. (laughs) So thank God, finally, he finds this bag of weed. It's quarter ounce of, you know, whatever fucking, whatever strain of weed that was there back in the day. And, um... We get into the car and we go back all the way back home and we get home safely. But that was a fucked up ass day. So anyway, that is my story. That's probably the best I can tell it at this state. I have to go get back to rehab. Um, But anyway, this is the phone interview I did with um, John Gillen. He has a website called OceanRecoveryCenter.com where you can get to know more about him. He does have a really cool book um, called The Secret Disease of Addiction. Uh, So check that out. And yeah, so anyway, um, I'm going to wrap this up and segue into that. If you, any of you listening could, please, if you can, Leave us an iTunes review if you use iTunes to stream this podcast. Uh, if you could, please like our Facebook page, Nod Squad or Nod Squad Podcast. Um, follow us on Twitter, same handle. Of uh, our Instagram page, we're basically trying to get our numbers up. Our Facebook numbers are pretty ridiculous right now; they've just been stagnating. <laughs> And I know it's like we haven't been like doing a lot of posts and updates on there, but um, <clears throat> that will change soon. Uh, we'll get on that. Um, and if you also could go to our our pod host site, Podbean, maybe you know like or heart our episodes on there, or leave a comment on there as well. That would be awesome. We have an email, nodsquadpodcast at gmail you know, our emails have been pretty, pretty just 
just dead lately. So yeah, leave us an email, please. You know, anything you guys can do. If it's just like we we appreciate all the emails we have gotten, and you know, um, you can always reach out to me on my troll page, Brian Unk Albert at uh, on the Facebook page, and that's all I really got to say. Um, I love you guys. Uh, thank you for all the support, and you know. If you're out there struggling, you got this. You can always reach out to me. Um, And anyone who's in early clean time like me, getting through it, I'm proud of you. So with that, I'm just going to... I got to get out of here and get back to rehab. I'm literally, like, having to pack right now. So with that, I love you guys. And as always, peace, love, and all the above. John Gillingham, based here in the London, in the UK, although you probably recognise that I have a Scottish accent, originally from Glasgow. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you know, I'm uh, I'm a recovering alcoholic of uh, long-term recovery uh, for 20 years. Previous to this uh, new recovering life, uh, I was involved in professional uh, horse racing. I was a jockey and I was a professional racehorse trainer. Uh, along with that sport of King's uh, lifestyle uh, was a hazard that I never really thought about then, which was alcohol uh, and certain drugs just came with the territory. Uh, so I became a, a chronic, hopeless alcoholic, like a lot of people. Uh, you know, and it was, you know, there was nothing... There was nothing. There were a few things happened to me, negative things in my my life, like everybody else. I'm now 63 years old, uh, but there's no way I can blame any any of these traumas or anything like that. Uh, to me, becoming a chronic alcoholic, it was just continuous use uh, of the alcohol for the party effect, uh, and you know because it's alcohol, uh, the process to becoming chronically addicted takes sometimes decades mm-hmm. uh, all the warning scenes were there through the years with family, friends uh, which get ignored to the point where I, I, I just I lost everything uh, like everybody else, I was down on my knees hopeless, I was literally on the street asking for money to, you know, to buy a drink and I, in my case I ended up in a, a, an asylum uh, in a psychiatric facility having a psychiatric treatment program. Uh, but it was in that environment uh, when I found myself sitting there with some real serious mentally ill other patients who were really, really seriously mentally ill. And I was sitting there and I thought to myself, well, this is what society thinks of John Gillen and put you in the ear. This is where you belong with these other mentally ill people. Mm-hmm. Uh that was the, the biggest, you know, 
wake-up call. Uh, that was my moment of truth, so to speak. From that point, I really got down on my knees and I asked for help from a, you know, I had to go above humanity. because Nobody could help me, not even the, the, the doctors, nurses, nobody could help me. So it was that time that I went above humanity and like a lot of addicts, I found a, a, a spiritual path in life, which has uh, helped me, uh, you know, create a whole new life. So I've... Ended up, I followed a, a big, a big U-turn came in my life where I ended up in this healthcare business. So I've been uh, working to help other addicts for the past 17 years or so professionally. I'm a director of uh, four residential rehab facilities here in the UK. Uh, Ten years ago, I also became the European pioneer of intravenous NAD treatment. So it's an infusion therapy which... Uh, it helps a lot of people, so I've been pioneering that here in the UK. Recently, um, last year I returned from Atlanta in the US USA, where I'm now pioneering virtual reality, relapse prevention. Really? So I like to consider myself as a, a, a pioneer in addiction treatment, because addiction treatment as it stands, uh, in my opinion, is a failure. And it's a failure uh, you know, here in the UK, not so much in the USA, but here in the UK... We, we tend to treat uh, addiction from a, a different perspective. Uh, I'm the co-author of a, a, a book called The Secret Disease of Addiction, which is based on my research and studies, uh, focusing on the, the, the psychobiological uh, disease concept. And I truly stick with that. Here in the UK, we have a great deal of difficulty, um, you, you know, accepting addiction as a chronic brain disease, a disorder that has to be treated. Uh, we, we don't buy that here. Certainly in America, uh, yeah. it, it's more thought of and accepted as a brain condition. Here it, it's, it's, a, it's a behavioral issue, environmental issue. So with these new concepts that I look at, I also have a, 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 a great place for heart rate variability. Uh, biofeedback programs that I use. They're using these. And, and recently, funny enough, I've just joined the AMANS program, the AMEN Clinic, uh, Brian, which you'll probably be familiar with, Dr. AMEN. Yes, I, I've, I'm somewhat familiar with it. But um, yeah. if anyone out there isn't, isn't um, educated on it, could you explain it real quick? Well, the AMEN Clinic is a, he's, he's a US uh, psychiatrist doctor who for many, many years, has, has looked at addiction. And, and, you know, he, like myself, is a firm believer that, you know, addiction uh, is a, a a brain condition. Now, I'm not, I'm not uh, I don't mean genetically. I mean, there's, I'm not going near the genetic side. I'm just talking about in general. Uh, and he, for years, he's been uh, running uh, spec scans. Uh, it shows evidence of this. So the evidence is there. Uh, and he has uh, certain programs now that are available outside this clinic, uh, and we are now beginning to educate and get our, our staff certified uh, in his online programs as an added uh, bonus to, you know, a lot of our uh, treatment we do here is, you know, once we've got people stable, uh, it, a lot is firmly put on uh, education. Mm -hmm. So we use his uh, experience and uh, background 
information as part of our educational program. We feel that because, it, you know, the education is sometimes more important than actual therapy for most people. Mm-hmm. So that, that's where that, that's where I come from. I, I, I really am fighting a losing battle here, and it's, you know, sad to say that one of our former employees, I had a call at 7 a.m. this morning to tell me, you know, he took his own leaf. Uh, oh, my God. You know, uh, as, you know, you know utter desperation as it comes to that. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, and the same, there was a guy a couple of years ago, and it was even broadcast on TV and maybe so in the, the, the States, the, uh, a, a Dutch guy booked himself into one of these Swiss uh, euthanasia clinics to end his life. Uh, a, a chronic alcoholic who could no longer suffer the, the, the constant need for relief. How many of his family he decided he wanted to end his life, so they took him to a clinic. Now, that, that you know, what, what the, the significance of these stories is to try to reinforce the, the disease model and addiction that here in the UK we really need to get right together and really start uh, looking at it as a proper real brain disease, the same as Parkinson's, Alzheimer's and other neurodegenerative conditions. Uh, so that's just a little bit of background of me and where I'm at with things, Brian. I hope it's been helpful. Yeah, um, it's it's actually funny you mentioned the Amen Clinic because I, uh, I had been treated at one of the their clinics here in the States and it was really, um, it was really amazing how how thorough they are you know i i went uh, undergone a a blood test background and checked for you know nutritional deficiencies and had a brain scan and saw a licensed therapist it, it was um you know it was really it was really beneficial at the time um <clears throat> can i ask you what how do you think addiction has evolved over the years in the uk like as far as, as subculture or or drugs that are, are popping up? Is there, a, is there a big opiate epidemic over there? Um, I know you mentioned there's kind of this social stigma still go ongoing that people don't look um, uh, at addiction as a disease model or more of um, a choice, most likely. Or um, what would you say is the, is the, are like the big issues going on there? Well, you know, just in the past uh, three months, the, the late figures that was published from Scotland, that Scotland uh, has the highest, the, the death, opiate deaths have just increased. We have the highest rate of deaths in Europe here, in Scotland. Uh, wow. Recent figures, there's more people uh, came to a sad end uh, in the past couple of years than ever before. So the, the increase in fatalities is a uh, is greater than it's ever been in, in Scotland. But overall, uh, the, 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 you know, the, in the UK here, uh, opiates uh, is a, a slight decline in opiate uh, street use and more uh, towards, you know, benzapine uh, clients coming in, which were introduced to benzapines through their, their physician. So mm-hmm. prescribed drugs are becoming more of a, an issue here. And that, and that's, you know, absolutely w- without question. Not so much with the the Oxycontin, Tramadol uh, 
prescribed medication, but more uh, benzos. Uh, so, you know, but really, generally, alcohol is the premier uh, drug here in the UK. Uh, you know, 90% of our clients, and we'll have 50 clients in treatment any day of the week, 90% of the clients will be uh, alcohol-related. So alcohol here in the UK is the biggest issue that we have, without, without question. Yeah, and that's one of the most deadly. I know that with alcohol and benzos, um, those are two of the, I think the only two substances I know of that the, the physical withdrawal can actually be fatal. Um, do you have uh, detox um, facilities within your, your inpatient? Yeah. Or? Okay. Yeah, well, obviously, that, yeah, well, I mean, we, we, we pride ourselves of, uh, that's the, the first phase of treatment, mm-hmm. uh, is to stabilise people through withdrawal. Uh, I, I, don't, I never use that word detox because, I mean, that idea, even just that word itself, is misinformation to people. You know, and this is part of our education, how we, we start to educate people. The, the the word detox gives people the idea that they're coming to these facilities and uh, they're having a, something removed from them. You, you understand? The, the, yeah. the, the, the word detox should be, you know, it's, it's a myth, detox. I mean, the time people get to our facilities, uh, they're already suffering withdrawal. So when we see them in, you know, withdrawal, we know that, I mean, obviously, you know, you know what we're doing is uh, it's chemically assisted withdrawal. Mm-hmm. So I mean, of course, we pride ourselves on. I wonder we've got some fantastic nurses and very experienced clinical staff. So all our facilities obviously have the the so-called uh, detox uh, wing attached to it. Um, and you had mentioned earlier some of the different um, therapies you used. Um, in your facilities, um, I, I just to reify, um, you said VR treatment of some kind. Yeah, yeah. Could you? Yeah, well, you know, that? yeah, well, many years ago, I started to. Uh, I'm talking many years ago, way back, like 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, I follow mostly what's happening in, in the states. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm, I've got many colleagues and friends who are working addiction in the states. Um, People like Dr. Hyla Cass, Julia Ross, and, and, and many, many other people, especially a lot of physicians that use uh, the NED uh, approach. So yeah. the the use of virtual reality has become quite a thing in the world these days. I mean, uh, it's been used for a long time to train jumbo jet pilots, for instance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so VR, through a, a company in Atlanta, uh, Virtually Better, I've been following their progress, and I went to Atlanta last year and put myself through their uh, their course, uh, and I bought their VR systems, and I've now we now have them installed in one of our rehabs here. We're just really getting to start to introduce it to clients. So it's based on virtual reality, where we can take the client under guidance and supervision by with a therapist uh, into different scenarios that they may find quite challenging. Again. This is for the the, the, the brain uh, to, to learn. So we can take them into a bar, for instance, uh, high-risk situations. They can be there. They can actually, with the, the new systems, they can actually pick up uh, a drink. They can pick up a cigarette. 
we can, you know, it's really quite something when you're in there. Mm-hmm. So we expose them to certain scenarios uh, repeatedly for, you know, seven to ten sessions. So when they actually, you know, leave the rehab and they find themselves in these high-risk situations, at least from the brain's point of view, it, it's, it, it helps the brain accept that environment more where the, the stress response uh, can be tamed a little bit. Uh, and it obviously has a, a cognitive effect to building up new memories, your coping, coping skills. So we're we're looking forward to really kind of get going with it uh, this coming year. That's um, <clears throat> incredibly fascinating. I never had thought before to role play high risk situations um, with someone in a in a safe environment to kind of. Um, strengthen their abilities to know how to navigate through that because that seems to be the number one issue is even people who have gone through treatment um, get introduced, you know, they could be doing fine and then they get introduced into a situation where they're offered alcohol or drugs and they don't know how to handle it and and many times they give in. So um, that's, that just, you know, that's, blows my mind that that's even um, yeah. being practiced today. That's amazing. Um, so um, I know you don't have a lot of time, but... Um, yeah, it's been well pioneered down there in Houston by a professor, really? uh, uh, Patrick Broderick. He's done, he's done years of research. So it's an evidence-based therapy these days. You know, it's not some something that's just off the shelf. It's been... Uh, it's been under research for many years, so there's fairly decent uh, uh, evidence that goes with it. So, like I say, we we have these systems in place, and uh, like you know, I, I wish I could uh, tell you some uh, outcomes with it, but we've already just kind of uh, started to introduce it to the clients. But the clients that's been on it, and there's a queue of people when they hear about it. Uh, it's one of these therapies everybody wants to try. So. Yeah. Six months time, or maybe this time next year, I could be having a more detailed talk uh, about how uh, how that's shown, uh, uh, you know, out in the environment when people leave us. Yeah. Oh, I would love to. Um, I mean, you you said you have um, been clean for twenty years, or just over twenty years. Um, yeah. Well, 20, 20, 20 years in recovery. Yes, twenty years. So, um, you know, I know back. 20 years ago that these kind of, um, services weren't available. Um, and you, did you, um, you, um, were you involved with like, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous and that while you were in your early recovery? Oh, oh yes. I mean, uh, you know, in my early days, I was, and still am, I, I mean, our, our programs are based, you know, they have, a, a, a you know, underpinned by 12, a 12 step program, mm-hmm. uh, uh, it's very, very important is because uh, for, for obvious reasons. Uh, well, you know, uh, you know, although I don't say what I would say is, you know, my first four or five years in recovery, uh, I was a staunch uh, attendee, 12-step uh, meetings and stuff like that, but as things have changed for me. I've become less uh, dependent on uh, actually being at meetings. So you'll probably find me at a meeting every, what, Three four weeks, eh? Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, it was a strong, but it was a very strong support of the twelve step program. Um, you know, I see it's you know not just a spiritual program, but 
Uh, it's a programme which works very well with CBT and other cognitive therapies as far as... So that's where we're at with 12 Steps. We have, uh, we have good facilitators in the units for that. Well, I, I would imagine because of your... your um your career path and um, what you do for a living, it, it's still, it's, it's basically almost the same. I, I would think it was identical as, as you know, the step 12 and, you know, yeah, you facilitate yeah, yeah. meetings. Yeah. So you're being of service to others and stuff. So um, what, what can I ask you, what was your initial experience getting through the steps uh, for you? Because I know, you know, I've, I've done, um, the 12 steps of AA. And I mean, I can just say from my experience, it was at first a very uncomfortable feeling getting through yeah, yeah. Um, everything and, you know, um, reading, I mean, but it was really insightful reading um, Bill's book, uh, the big book of AA. And, um, you know, for anyone out there who's in early recovery and getting through it, who may not know what it's like, uh, I'm sure there would be really interested on what that that journey was like for you. Well, it was the same as yours. There was a lot of resistance, a lot of ego mind uh, resistance towards the twelve steps. I mean, before I, I actually found total surrender, it was you know on my knees, so to speak. I was attending meetings, uh, but all I was doing was like many other people, I was just going there and paying lip service. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was just trying it. Uh, I just, to be quite frank, I just thought, well, you know, what, you know, what's God got to do with my drink? You know, mm-hmm. I mean, this is uh, this is far out stuff. This uh, it was rooted in sort of religion to me, and it was like a kind of cult. Yeah. They were using language that I found absolutely bewildering, uh, and, I, and I just totally rejected it. But when my moment came. You know, like I explained to you, when I was in that psychiatric facility, uh, that first step came to me uh, in that situation. From that day on, uh, I, I, I looked at the twelve-step program and I welcomed welcomed it in wholeheartedly, and I, I, I just came to me no problem. Now we have a lot of difficulty with fifty percent of our clients uh, who are the same as you and me, Brian, mm-hmm. and it's difficult. Uh, to, to try to get them to accept the twelve step program, and again, uh, you know, from another point of view, uh, I always tell people, you know, well, when they're leaving us, they'll say, well, you know what, John, I'm looking forward to going. I've got a meeting planned for tonight. I'm going to two meetings on Wednesday. I'm going to. And I said, look, I said you have to do more than go. You, you, you need to do more than meetings. Yeah, meetings are okay, but you know, you need to do more. Especially that everybody uh, tell everybody that you you know there's a protracted period of abstinence. Uh, so when they leave our units after a 28 day program, you know the low meetings are, are great for everybody. I strongly believe that you you got to do other things also as well. But we we've great difficulty in introducing people to it, mm-hmm. and we try different ways. Introducing to it, you know, and some take to it like a duck to water, and others like me and you, they struggle a little bit. Uh, and only, you know, through time that they succumb to it through their own uh, desperate need. Yeah, definitely. Um, what would you say is the, like, the 
the rate of um, like age that are, you know, of people that are coming into your your facilities are are they getting a lot younger? Or? Well, we're getting some young people. We you know who are using things like ketamine. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't get many young people coming to us. We drink it's normally cocaine, ketamine. Uh, uh, but the average age for us is across the board. It will never change. It's forty-five to fifty years old. Forty-five and really? no, normally fifty in males. That hmm. can vary slightly with it, but but that's the age. That's that's the the the, the age gender uh, gap that we get in all our units. Wow. Um, do you think that is that is because that around that t- age um, people have finally accepted surrender? I know that you know a lot of people who are in their early twenties and in early recovery feel that their twenties are supposed to be full of like social gatherings and 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 celebrating and and partying and stuff um do you feel like the the cultural aspects of where you live uh affect whether people are able to accept they have a problem or not well i just i I totally agree with that totally agree uh you know even my own you know, looking back in my own life, that's that was the situation with me, and that's the situation with everybody here. You know, and, and then obviously, you know, the disease of addiction is a disease. It tells you there isn't one. So yeah. you have the, the aspect of acquiring the disease in the first 10, 15 years as a result of going through your twenties and thinking, well, this is the way you live life, partying every night, thinking about prioritizing your thoughts towards. Uh, a party which includes alcohol, all through that phase where you think it's perfectly normal. Mm-hmm. Uh, to the day your life changes and, and you, you need a drink in the morning, say, uh, then that's a sign that you, the, the physical abnormalities started, that you're now physically uh, involved. And then you probably got another 10 years of learning how to be an addict and learning how to be a functional addict yeah. before you start losing everything to the point where, you know, life itself just, you know, presents it to you, like you say, here. So I totally agree. It's very difficult. I mean, the last thing addicts want at that age is is treatment, you know. Like Mm -hmm. I said, my own life, all the early warning signs were getting posted to me, family, friends, say, John, hey, you don't think you're drinking a little bit much? (laughs) Do you not think you should cut back a little bit? You know, it's like somebody with Alzheimer's. You say, "Hey, Dad, you're getting a little bit forgetful these days," uh, and they'll turn around and say, "Hey, there's nothing wrong with me." Yeah, I mean, the, the, the disease is progressing in the, the human brain. The very organ that you need to use to get the insight has already been uh, contaminated with abstract thought patterns about yourself, the environment, and everything else. So, you know, sometimes you know it has to be the gift of desperation needs to come along and but when it does uh i really feel that everything has to be put in place to give the person the best chance yeah to avoid this situation that has you know happened this morning with that ex-employers i mean i don't think people realize that they're dealing with an absolute fatal condition that oh, it's yeah. absolutely fatal. i mean in, in the states in your country 
the epidemic, uh, the opioid, mm-hmm. is, 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 I mean, it's, it's absolutely catastrophic, devastating. Yeah. Oh. These people, they, they people are, are, are not using drugs to have a party. They're not getting together in, in crack houses and saying, well, you know, let's, let's turn the music up and let's have a good time. You know, it's you know we had a call this morning from a benzo addict. His physicians have got him hooked on benzos, and now they don't know what to do with him. They're, they're sending him prescriptions out, telling him to use the Zopiclon, which is a, a sleeping agent during the day. Uh, you know, they just see prescription heavy duty drugs like opiates and benzos is well out of control, oh, well yeah. out of control. Yeah, the Scotland's yeah. done something about the alcohol, even although it's got the, the the biggest rise in opiate deaths in Europe. At least last year, it, it, it raised the, the price of alcohol quite massively. Oh, really? uh, yeah, so Scotland's doing some some things uh, to, to, to you know in the way of awareness and probably you know harm reduction. That's what I was going to ask you. Um, do you think there needs to be um, a balance between, you know, harm reduction and, um, you know, judicial punishment to kind of um, help, you know, suffering addicts out there, but at the same time hold them accountable to realize or, or you know, kind of help them realize that they, they have a problem? Because I know here in the States we... I mean, we kind of lean way more towards locking people up, throwing them in jail, um, adding convictions to their criminal record. And I, I honestly think, you know, while that can like be helpful to make someone realize, oh, I have, you know, a, a three-year prison sentence hanging over my head, I need to get my life together. But at the same time, it can also hold people back or, or keep you know, um, force them into keeping their problem into like, in, 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 um, into hiding and secrecy. So do you think there needs to be a balance between the two in order to help the, this issue that's going on right now? I, th- I think there's definitely more of a balance in the USA and what they are here in the UK. Yeah. Uh, 48, well, 48% of the prison population here in the UK, 48% are in there because of drinking drug related, uh, crime. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, at least uh, in the states, there's some recognition of, of, of giving people a choice, of rehabilitation. Yeah. Uh, we don't that does not exist here at all. Uh, now, now, I ain't saying that everybody who's addicted to drinking drugs. Uh, I mean, there's accountability and there's you know responsibility at the same time, but there's a lot of you know it's well out of sync. Uh, we don't have any balance here. Uh, now we've just entered into a government program with the local health authorities uh, for much the same reason that the, the NHS uh, is, is is absolutely melting here in the UK uh, because of, well, a lot of problems. But, you know, what's the point of taking an alcoholic and, and putting them into a, 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 a gastro ward in, in a general hospital? And that's what's happening. So these alcoholics are going into these hospitals. They're being the so-called detox in the hospitals, taking up hospital beds for other patients. Uh, they're being, you know, discharged within a week or two. Then they're 
you know, they're back in there again, you know, cost of the NHS, uh, vast amounts of money where we can treat them in a proper environment, which we have, which is a proper drug and alcohol hospital for them where we could, they can get specialist help. So we've just started that. So we're hoping to show uh, good results uh, and evidence that, you know, that that is a better choice for them. Uh, the prisons is another thing. Uh, when I started in the addiction field, one of my jobs in Scotland was uh, I went to the, the biggest prison in Scotland uh, once a week to uh, interview people who were in there for alcohol-related uh, crimes who were due for release. Uh, I would bond with them and hopefully pick them up on the release date and try to move them into employment and, you know, healthy recovery. Uh, so, you know, some good learning experience. Uh, within the prisons, they do have certain programmes, but, you know, uh, you know, but it's, it's pretty much a failure just because they're the type of environment you're trying to run the programmes in. So maybe having a, uh, uh, you know, a, a different locked system, but in a different environment, like a, a more open, flexible environment, would be better. Definitely. So, you're basically there's really no court ordered, uh, you know, outpatient drug no. programs for them. No, 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 nothing here. You know, it's you know, I'm sure if it started here, uh, we'd see some differences on on the positive side. I'm sure of it. Absolutely sure. Yeah, that's, wow, that's really eye-opening. It puts a lot into perspective. Um, I know you said you didn't have a lot of time, um, and we're we're um, a little over yeah. your limits. Um, so we can wrap this up, but is there, um, you know, uh, we'll, we'll definitely include all, all your all your information in our description in an intro, but um, is there anything you want to say to anyone out there listening who may be struggling um, with addiction or alcoholism themselves, who who may not know where to turn to to get help, or or is there anything you want to say to like you know um, the youth of today who is um, on the fence about even experimenting with drugs and alcohol? Well, you know, I would like to say for anybody that's out there uh, suffering, there is help available. Uh, you know, seek help, no matter what form it looks like. Ask help, but will come. Uh, I never asked for help. I, I, I just stayed where I was, thinking things would get better, uh, blaming the whole world rather than knowing that the enemy was I. Once I admitted that to myself, help became very easy. There is help. There is hope and recovery. There is a life without drinking drugs. Uh, I'm evidence of that, and, and, and so is you, Brian. Mm-hmm. The other message is loud and clear for the younger generation. Make no mistake about it, none whatsoever, to think alcohol or any form of drugs that you're going to have a party, because that's what happened to me. At the age of 15, I went to a party, and I never came home until I was 47 years old. Oh, wow. Thinking I was having a great time. Yeah. You know, to, to wake up and really take the, the information, it's widely available if you look. But just be honest with yourself. This is ain't, ain't a game. Like that ex-employee years this morning, that's the reality of it. Yeah. I, you know, everything is the opposite with addiction. What seems to be a good time ends up 
the the opposite. The happy hours become sad years. Definitely. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, I've enjoyed speaking with you, Brian, and, you know. Yeah, uh, thank you really. Let's I really, pick up um, and do this again. Yeah, I really appreciate you taking time to come on, and I'd love to have you back on again. Um, well, all right. well, hopefully I'll get to meet you face-to-face. I'm, I'm, I'm due a visit to uh, the, the West Coast, San Diego, LA district. Oh, really? So maybe I'm there, yeah. Oh, yeah. Come up there. Yeah, that would be great. I live right around that area. So, yeah, definitely reach out to me anytime. Okay, then. All right. Well, you take care uh, and keep spreading the word. Thank there you, is life. There is life and there is recovery.